Welcome to Truth and Liberty. Thank you for joining our daily live call-in broadcast where trusted leaders bring biblical insights to the issues and you can call in and get your questions answered in real time. According to the Bible, it's the truth you know that sets you free. So call in today to get answers, information, and resources to help you stand for truth and effect godly change in our nation and the world. And now here's your host, Richard Harris. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Truth and Liberty live call-in show, and happy Thanksgiving from everyone here at Andrew Womack Ministries, Karis Bible College and Truth and Liberty. It's a, an honor and blessing for us to be able to come to you today. Uh, we have a really special program in store for you today on Truth and Liberty. Uh, we are actually pre-recording today, and I have a really special guest with us again, and it's Tim Barton from Wall Builders. Tim, thanks for uh, coming on today. My pleasure. Good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and now, like I said, this is pre-recorded, yes. um, so it's not live. So today we're not going to have live call-in, uh, but we are. We do have a really special treat for you with Tim. Barton here, uh, Wall Builders. Uh, we're going to be talking about Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. both from a spiritual perspective, uh, a cultural perspective, and a historical perspective. I think you're going to really enjoy today's broadcast, folks, because you're definitely going to learn some things. I expect to learn some things, and I've been studying this, so get ready for this show. Uh, but you know, um, Thanksgiving is a distinctively American holiday. Yeah, it? it is. You know, I, I've, I've known people who uh, come here to go to Bible college and stuff from Europe, and and when it they, when they leave, they say, you know, my favorite American holiday is Thanksgiving. Yeah. And it's such a special time uh, for us with our family and everything, but also a time to stop and remember all of the amazing things that God has done for us, beginning with, you know, giving His Son, Jesus yes. Christ, the most important thing, to pay for our sins on the cross. But, you know, there's so many things to give thanks for, and in our lives we get so busy, and we we get so, uh, you know, focused on the, the stresses and things yeah. that are going on that we forget to get to give thanks. And I think it's just awesome that our founding fathers understood the importance of setting aside a specific time to give thanks to God for what He's done. It, it really is one of the remarkable things looking at America that there were leaders who, who thought we, we have to make sure that we acknowledge God for who He is and for what He's done. You know, certainly in, in Scripture it's very clear. I, I, one of the examples I think of often is when Jesus healed the lepers. Yes. And, right, there were 10 lepers. Ten lepers. Mm-hmm. And He said, go present yourself, right, that you'll be clean. And they go and one realizes, I'm healed and comes back. And the question Jesus asked is so interesting. Yeah. Right? He said, didn't I heal 10? Yes. Where are the other nine? The expectation was that we should always give thanks for what God has done. And so often, especially in American culture, we, we take what should be at times sacred moments and we commercialize them. Mm. Where, you know, where Christmas really should be, it should be all about Jesus. Yeah. It, it really shouldn't be about Rudolph and Santa Claus, although, right, I, I get it, it can be fun. But we so commercialize things that at times we lose the spiritual reality or the impact. And to your point, if you back up in early America, the Founding Fathers, they're not even the ones that established the notion of Thanksgiving, but they certainly carried on the tradition. I did, we could go back really to the Pilgrims as being the ones that really established Thanksgiving. Right. But even before the Pilgrims, when you go to uh, the, the Cape Cod, 1607, kind of the Jamestown colony, when they land, one of the first things they do is they say, we need to thank God that we've arrived at this new land. It used to be that people, I, I think, at least I think it's fair to argue this. They, they used to be much more cognizant of their duty to thank God 
recognizing what God had done. And I think sometimes for us, we get so consumed in our routine and our family and the busyness that we, we can minimize at times the significance of, of our call to be thankful, because obviously in Scripture, yes. there are so many mm. examples and, and specific commands at times that we're supposed to be people that give thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Paul the Apostle wrote in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. You know, here uh, at the college, a lot of times and in my church, people always want to know, how do I know God's will? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I think the starting point for that is start doing the things that He's already told you right. in Scripture. Uh, and if you're doing those things, He will lead you into His other will that Very needs to much. be revealed to you. If we'll devote ourselves to giving thanks and praising God for the good things He's already done, we're, we're going to be so busy, we won't have time to worry about, uh, God, what's your will for my life, right? right? He, he'll well, work it out for us. And I think, too, that, you know, we, we, we could also point out there's, there's a specific will and a general will. Yes. And the general will of God is so clear in Scripture yes. that we've been called to do some very basic things. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. Well, okay, so what are his commands? Well, one of them, like the Apostle Paul outlines, and everything give thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in good times and bad. It doesn't right. mean you have to thank God for sickness or no. poverty, but you can thank Him that He has the power to turn yes. that around for your good. It, it, we thank Him in spite of that, because right. we know that we serve a God who can cause all things to work together for good. Mm -hmm. For those who love Him, they're called according to His purpose. We, we, we don't just praise Him in the good times. In fact, we can go back to examples in the Bible of Job, mm -hmm. when Job lost everything. Right. And at one point, his wife's like, you know, it'd be easier for you if you just curse God and die. Right. And it, it, I think there's a couple ways to, to read Job's wife's advice. But I think it's possible, like, she loved her husband and was like, I, I'm feeling for you, and I know this will be over. Like, let's just, for you. Now, we might read that a couple different ways, but the reality was Job said, no. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to continue to praise God in spite of my, not because of my, in spite of my circumstances. Right. But I think this is one of the consistent thoughts in Scripture is that the reason Paul says and everything give thanks is because we can give thanks to God regardless of our circumstances. Who God is, is consistent. And if God never did another thing for us in our life, which I right. think He's going to, yes, right? I, I totally believe He will. Totally. But even if He didn't, He's still worthy of our praise. Amen. He's still worthy. That's right. Even if our circumstances is not what we desire them to be. You know, that's so it. I mean, he, uh, just the fact that we're alive and that we have breath in our lungs and we get to experience the gift of life is enough to give thanks to yeah. God. But you add on to that when you start thinking about what He's done for us in sending Jesus, our Savior, to die on the cross for our sins and to give us eternal life. It, it's almost like it doesn't even matter what else happens in this life, mm -hmm. whether I ever get another good thing or not. I have security in heaven for all of eternity right. with Almighty God. You know, that's enough to praise Him for the rest of time, right? Um, and, you know, I, but, but speaking about, you know, America and our, our heritage, I know a lot of people, a lot of conservatives today, and, and even even liberals are looking at our country and thinking, what have what's going on? It's a mess. Everything is falling apart. It's yeah. a wreck. Uh, America's over. America's done, and uh, a lot of negativity. But I'm when I'm thinking about Thanksgiving, I'm remembering uh, the story of Jehoshaphat in the Bible, yes. right? King Jehoshaphat. So Second Chronicles chapter 20, I think it is, when Israel was invaded by a coalition of uh, Ethiopians and Egyptians and Moabites and Edomites and all these ites, and the horde was too many to number, and Jehoshaphat. Uh, sought God. He, he, he got on his face before the Lord and said, this is too many for us. We don't know what to do. Your God, help us. And they put 
they put the praise team out front, yep. right? Yep. And they started singing, uh, the Lord is good, uh, his, uh, give thanks, his mercy endures forever. Right. And then what happened? God destroyed the enemy. Yeah. Do you see any parallels between that yeah. and where we are today? I think it's a great connection. Uh, where it's easy to look at circumstances and be overwhelmed by circumstances and, and, and at some point to be discouraged. And when we're right. discouraged, it's hard right. to give praise when you're discouraged. But the reality is the more we praise God, the more we take our eyes off of the issue that's bothering us and we put our eyes on the one who is the solver of issues, I, I think is very much what Paul and Silas did in prison. Yeah. Right? That's a pretty bad situation. You're in change, right? You're locked up. That, right. that cannot be a comfortable scenario. Right. And their idea was we should praise God. Amen. Right. I mean, I, I really pray God helps my faith to be that strong in those right, moments. Right. Right. But, but this, is, this is the example we see of Scripture. And what's so remarkable is both of those examples, praise led to a breakthrough yes. that led to a victory for both of them. Yes. Both scenarios where I think, again, I think sometimes we, we minimize some of these really significant spiritual components like Thanksgiving. Right. Why do we see so many places in Scripture? You go through Psalm, Psalm 150, Amen. easy example. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Amen. It's super clear. We have breath. We should be praising the Lord. It, it, it's something that if we would spend more time focusing on the solver of problems than our problems, mm -hmm. it would help change our perspective, our attitude, and ultimately even our circumstance might change just through the act of obedience to praise God. You know, right now a lot of people think, well, God is judging America, mm -hmm. right? And God's done with us and we've sinned too much uh, and these kinds of things. But you know, I suspect that maybe Paul and Silas were tempted to wonder, God, did we sin? What, what have we done wrong? We must have missed you, Lord. Lord, I thought you told me to go to Philippi, right? I thought I saw a vision, Lord. Was that not you? I must have missed you. How many of us do that right in sure. our life? And we forget that usually it's after we obey God that we encounter the hardship. Right. Because Satan wants to deter us. Right. right. And I'm not saying that America is particularly obedient right now, but I am saying that I think it's a mistake to, to think that God has given up on our country. Yes. And haven't we, don't we have a tradition of giving thanks during hardship and hard times as a nation? Absolutely. To that extent, it'd be very easy to point to times of the American Revolution mm -hmm. when America is trying to become a nation. We're trying to build a military and the Continental Congress every single fall says we're going to designate a day to thank God. And, and there were times they're thanking God and they haven't won a battle that year. Wow. Right. Like what? I mean, I get it. Let's thank God because of who he is and, and ultimately what he's done. But like this year, what are we thanking God for? And it's interesting sometimes reading even some of those prayer and Thanksgiving proclamations, how at times they would come up with creative things to thank God for. I'll read those and go, oh, well, that's, that's a good idea, yeah, right? I don't know if I would have thought of that in that moment, but that's a good idea. I, I think sometimes as we look back historically, it, it's easy for us to, to lose perspective over what people were going through in those moments and how they responded in those right. moments and what's consistent in American history is that we had leaders who in some of the darkest days of America were people who knew in times of need, we need to call on God. And sometimes that we not just call on God in prayer, asking God to intervene, but sometimes we need to be thanking God for the things that God has done, whether or not we see the resolution, the answer, right. the solution, whether it's come through, we're still going to thank God. Ultimately, I was youth pastor for nine and a half years. I would tell my kids, right? We, we, we do praise and worship activity in, in church. Are we singing these songs? It's for two reasons. 
for who God is and what God has done. Well, who God is doesn't change. Right. We, we, we thank God for his faithfulness. We thank yes. God for his mercy. We thank God for his grace. We thank God for his love. There are things we should be thanking God for in spite of our circumstances. Mm -hmm. So at times I, I, would, I would tell our students, when you don't understand the ways of God, you trust in the goodness of God. Mm. And I think, That's good. especially if we're looking at America going, I'm, you know, I think it's God's judgment. Okay, I don't know what God is or isn't doing because his ways are not my ways, yeah. right? I, I got some ideas of what I would do. I'm not God, yeah. I'm not in charge. I don't know that I know what he's doing, but I know who he is and I know I can trust in his goodness. And by the way, the notion that America's under judgment, I, I think it's fair to say America deserves a lot of judgment for what we've done. I also think it's fair to say that what we are seeing is God is, God is moving and God is waking up so many people. And I don't think rationally you can argue that God would be moving and doing as many things in this nation as he is if he was done with this nation. That's right. I so I don't think God is done. I think God is still on the move. Now we got a lot of problems, but it doesn't take away as, as we're celebrating Thanksgiving, we should be people of thanks that if, right, if we're the one leper that's going to go back and thank God for healing, we need to make sure, and that's only 10%, right? right. Percentages. That's, that, the that's yeah. not the majority, but it's also worth noting that in scripture, it says that if my people are called by my name, right? I mean, that this, this is the famous, yeah. right? It, it, it wasn't about everybody doing the right thing. It was about God's people. God's people right. first, right. And so this is where, even as we're looking at our nation, how do we solve these problems? Well, first of all, Christian, let's be obedient. Mm -hmm. Let's make sure on these days of Thanksgiving, let's remember who God is. Let's remember what he's done. And if our circumstances aren't where we want them to be, then let's find the areas we can find the good in our life. Right. And maybe, maybe that could be a, a good homework assignment today. Let's make a list of 20 things in our life that we need to thank God for. And some people might feel like 20 is a lot. That's not quite as much as you think. No, it's not. Because when you, that first five or six might feel like a lot, but once you start to get on a roll, you're going to start to realize, oh, God's done this and God's done this and I have this and I have this and I'm grateful for this. And quickly you begin to realize how much God has done and it changes your perspective and helps you find that joy and encouragement in life. Yeah, that's so good, Tim. You know, uh, there's a famous uh, psalm that uh, I think got made into a little, a little worship song back in the late 80s or 90s. And it, it's uh, enter his, Psalm 100 verse 4, enter, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And, you know, people think that, well, if I praise God, then God will manifest his presence in our lives. And I, I say God's presence is already present mm -hmm. in your life. What happens when you give thanks and you give praise to God is you're turning your mind onto the truth. You're right. focusing on that which is higher than you, eternally true. And as a result of that, you become aware of his presence <laughs> right. and your, your body, soul, and spirit align with him and you begin to feel it, experience it, and so on. And it releases faith yes. and everything else. And so it's just a, it's a discipline that we have to do but let's go back to this idea of doing it as a country, as a mm -hmm. nation, and, and even in hard times. You know, <clears throat> um, it's really not that hard to give thanks when things are going right. Right, right. It's, so the commandment is there for the hard times. Right. right? Give thanks in all things. Um, and, you know, Abraham Lincoln issued a Thanksgiving proclamation, yes. right, in 1863 yes. during the middle of the Civil War. Country is being ravaged by war. Yes. No family is untouched by this horrible conflict. And you've got, I mean, it's just unspeakable how many people are being killed and maimed right. and uh, property lost uh, that damage was um, incomprehensible to right. us today. Right? I, th I think that's fair to say. I, I, I think that's fair to say, for sure. And, um, and yet Lincoln, 
calls on the country to prayer. Can you comment on that? I, I can. So 1863, uh, I think two of the more significant prayer proclamations Lincoln did were 1863. Because mm -hmm. 1863 in the spring, he has a prayer and fasting proclamation, which is so profound. Uh, I would encourage people to go back and read it because I, I think it's relevant for where we are in America today, where he says, we've forgotten God. We thought our success came from the strength of our own hands and our own industry. And we thought it was our own greatness. And now we have fallen and calamity has overtaken us. And he goes through and saying, we need to go back to God and we need to seek forgiveness and, and ask God to intervene and help where we have failed. And remarkable, remarkable prayer proclamation. Well, then that fall is when he has the prayer and Thanksgiving proclamation that Richard, the one you're referring to, because this is not the only ones he did. Right. But the one of 1863 is worth noting, because as you mentioned, this is the heart of the Civil War. And at this point, the Union has lost the majority of the battles. Mm -hmm. So you're on the losing side majorities of battle speaking, and yet you realize, you recognize the importance that even though this war is not going the way we had hoped it would go, we haven't seen all the victories we want to see, and we have lost so many people along the way, Lincoln still recognized that we still need to acknowledge God. And then when you read his prayer proclamation, Thanksgiving proclamation, he begins to identify some of the blessings that it would be easy to overlook. He says, we, we actually, so many of our, our, our states had a great harvest of crops this year, right? right? And you're like, okay, I mean, I guess, I guess that's true. Like my cousin died, but we got good crops, right? Like it seems weird that you're doing this, but he was finding the positive. Yes. Because what he recognized is even though our life in this moment is not what we wanted it to be, it should not distract us from the reality that God is still moving and doing things. And we need to thank God for what he's doing. It's also, I think, something that is a, a biblical perspective where we see it in a couple places in scripture. One of the easy ones is, is James chapter one, mm -hmm. right? Consider it pure joy when you go through various trials, knowing touching your faith bruises patience, e even in the midst of hardship. We should be going, God, thank you that you are still moving, that you're still working, that maybe right now you're developing my character. Yeah. To me, this is the attitude that Lincoln took, yeah. where he says, God, we're still going to be thankful right. in spite of everything that has not been going our way. Yeah, totally. Uh, what an example. And you know, Lincoln himself had such tragedy in his own yes. life with the loss of his, uh, his son uh, while he was serving president. Correct. And, um, and other things, and I, I just, it, it's amazing um, that he would do that. Can, sometimes it boggles the mind to think of a president now <laughs> speaking or doing things like some of the great presidents of the founding era and even you know up, up into the 19th century did, uh, publicly calling on the people to give thanks to, to God. Um, now, you know, Donald Trump issued a, a proclamation yes. in his term. And it was controversial, like the liberals were saying, separation of church and state, you know. But the truth is that uh, in our founding era, how many Thanksgiving proclamations were issued by governmental authorities in America? Yes, and, and, and if I can come to that in a second, first I want yeah. to point out, nearly every president's done a Thanksgiving proclamation. Yeah. So it was even more ludicrous, and we're like, look what Trump did. You mean what George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson did? Yeah, that's what he did, right? Like, it's, it's so crazy. Yeah. He did what Abraham Lincoln did. He did what Ronald Reagan did. He did what Calvin Coolidge did. He did what FDR and, and Truman and Wilson. Like, every president has done this, virtually speaking. Yeah. Back up to the founding era, though, 
what was very common in the early colonies, really, I mean, the Pilgrims started this tradition. The Pilgrims started the tradition, and in 1621, there was a day of prayer and thanksgiving. And this is where, right, the, the first Thanksgiving, famous Thanksgiving. Well, in 1623, they had a, a massive drought, and so the, Governor Bradford called for a colony-wide day of prayer and fasting, because uh, they knew if God didn't send rain, their crops wouldn't grow. If their crops didn't grow, they might not survive. And, and God sent rain. It was a very miraculous, very cool story the way it unfolded. But it started a tradition that for the pilgrims, every spring, they would do a proclamation for prayer and fasting, and every fall, they would do a proclamation for prayer and thanksgiving. That continued on in the New England states. When the founding fathers come to political leadership, they carried on that tradition. John Hancock, for example, was the first governor of Massachusetts. As governor of Massachusetts, he was governor for 11 years. And in 11 years, he did 22 prayer proclamations, 11 for prayer and fasting, 11 for prayer and thanksgiving. Wow. Now, that's a pretty easy average. It's two a year. Yes, it's the tradition the pilgrim set that was carried on. By the time you get to 1815, in the New England colonies alone, there had been more than 1,400 official government calls to prayer. This was the way it always was in America, that we knew every spring we're praying and asking for God to intercede. And, and of course, rain was a very common one, but whatever else was going on. So if we're at war, we're asking God, intervene for us, be our shield, our, our buckler, our defense. And then every, every fall, regardless of if we're in the middle of a war or peacetime, if it's been abundance or drought, we're going to find something to thank God for because we knew this is important for us to do as, as a nation. And this is where the political leader of the nation, they laid this foundation for us, which is why as you even come forward, it, it, it seems rather ludicrous that people are challenging President Trump for doing that. We more so ought to be challenging President Biden for not doing right. it because this was a precedent that was set. And, and, and George Washington was the first president who did a prayer and Thanksgiving proclamation. George Washington's proclamation came uh, after when, when he gets sworn in in 1789, the first Congress meets and for the Constitution to be ratified, there were several states that said, we will only agree to ratify this if we can put a Bill of Rights on this, because we're not really sure we trust the federal government to limit themselves where they should. We want a Bill of Rights to make sure that some of our rights are identified and protected. So the first Congress, there were 90 members of the first Congress, they began drafting the Bill of Rights. When the Bill of Rights was completed, one of the individuals, there was a couple individuals, uh, Frederick uh, Augustus Muhlenberg was the Speaker of the House. He also was a pastor, uh, but he is one of the ones that helped get that uh, whole process through, but there were several members of the House that went to George Washington, the president, and they said, we have a suggestion. We just completed the Bill of Rights, which initially there were 12 amendments that sent the states, 10 of them ended up becoming ratified, mm -hmm. became known as the Bill of Rights. But when they sent those 12 amendments to the states to be ratified, they went to George Washington and said, hey, we've just completed this ask that we were challenged to do coming to the first Congress. And we think this is a moment we ought to thank God, because look at what we've accomplished. Yeah. We've become a nation. We have a constitution. We've now sent this listing of rights out to the people that we're going to have amendments to protect some more of our God-given rights. We need to thank God for what God has done. And Washington says, you're absolutely right. We, we need to thank God. So George Washington did the very first ever presidential prayer and fasting proclamation, and he laid the foundation that this is something presidents were going to do. And so in, as far as governors and presidents, every fall they would have a time of prayer and thanksgiving. When Lincoln came to the presidency, this is when they determined that it would be every, every November. They're going to, right, we're kind of putting a time frame around this. Every November, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. We're going to honor God. Ronald Reagan was the one who says it's going to be the fourth Thursday of November. And so it gets a little more specific as we go on. 
but they're continuing on with the same line of logic and yeah. reason that we are a nation who is only here because of the providence of God, of the intervention of God, because if, if we go through the American Revolution, right. right? I mean, we could go from the pilgrims all the way, first great awakening to the American Revolution, uh, second great awakening, civil war. When you start tracking all of the issues and how many times God intervened and God did miracles and God poured out his spirit, everybody used to recognize that we are a nation that is only here by the grace, the mercy, the goodness of God. Yes. So it wasn't controversial that we're gonna take at least one day every year and thank God right. for who he is, what he's done in this nation. And this is part of, I think, part of that history and heritage that people have forgotten along the way. Yeah, you know, uh, gosh, there's so many directions to go here, but uh, I wanna talk about separation of church and state myth. But before that, I thought it would be awesome if we could just pull up George Washington's first I mean, we may not have it on the screen, but I, I've got to print it out in my notes and maybe go through it because there's some things that he says in there, Tim, that I think are really instructive uh, for us today um, and, and will help us understand kind of the mindset of our founding fathers and how deeply Christian our nation was at the time. Uh, you, you, one of the things that strikes me, struck me when I was reading it to get ready for today's show was that Washington was actually responding to a request from Congress. You already mentioned that. Right. So it's Congress that is saying, Mr. President, we need, we need to thank God. Correct. Isn't that incredible? And that Congress included James Madison, uh -huh. who's considered the father of the Constitution. Yes. Right, where today we're told, oh, no, separate church that you can't do. No, James Madison was part of the first Congress. And when you start looking at the members of that, there were 90 members of the first Congress, and many of them had been part of the Revolution. Many of them had been part of the Declaration or Constitution. These were noted founding fathers, very influential people. And this was the leaders of the nation saying, it seems like this is what we ought to do. And George Washington said, you're absolutely right. Yeah. That's exactly what I do. And so how does that square with, today we're taught that, you know, the Constitution is a godless document. Yeah. There's even a book by that name with no footnotes, by right. the way. You guys have pointed that out. Uh, you know, that, that the, the founders were not Christians, they were deists, that they, they, had, they wanted nothing to do with uh, Christianity being involved in, and all this, these myths. How do they square this information, this basic event, yeah. right, with that way of thinking? So usually it's because they don't go to historic documents or resources. Okay. Right? They're repeating what some other... Uh Right, whatever academic, said. right, whatever some academic, some professor, some teacher, some politician said, well, we know they really weren't religious. And what they usually will do is they will point to a couple of people that they will argue weren't religious. They'll say, well, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, we know they weren't religious. And they might point to one or two letters where they say something and you're like, well, that, maybe that does seem kind of not really in line with Christianity. But what they are not being intellectually honest about is, for example, George Washington, in his writings, he, he, there's, there's over a hundred volumes of his letters, okay? Yeah. I think it's actually more like 160 volumes. So it's 160 books wow. just full of his letters. Wow. This guy, it, it's believed that during the American Revolution, so he, he personally, it's believed, he personally responded to every single letter he ever received and every correspondence he ever got. Uh, it's estimated, historians have, have done a lot of research on this, during the American Revolution, it's estimated he would have only been able to sleep three to four hours a night because every night when he got to his tent, he began responding and replying to letters. And with how many letters he wrote back, and especially how many he wrote back in the era of the 
American Revolution, they're going, this guy couldn't have slept hardly at all any night ever because of how diligent he was in correspondence. But the reason I point that out is if you're talking about 160 volumes of his letters, and you're gonna to point to two or three letters and be like, see, okay, yeah. there's hundreds of thousands of other letters. And if you look, for example, just to the American Revolution, thousands. he has 250 times in his letters, he talked about God's providence intervening on their behalf in the American Revolution. So this is not a guy who's anti-God. This was a guy who clearly recognized had God not intervened, we would not have won the revolution. But people don't point to those letters. They want to point to one or two things. Now, by the way, not even George Washington. I think this is, he's one of the weaker examples when they want to say the founding fathers weren't religious. I think they'll point to uh, letters between John Adams and Jefferson at the very end of their life, uh, maybe one or two from Franklin. But the point is that those are not the entirety of the founding fathers, and those letters don't even represent the entirety of their lives. But people have just never studied enough of their writings or even their actual prayer proclamations as presidents right. or governors to realize, oh, maybe, maybe there's more to their belief yeah. than just this one line from this one letter. Yeah, yeah, right. It's, uh, it's uh, finding what you want to find. Right. Uh, well, so um, we're, uh, we're on a, uh, up to a break right now. We're going to take about 90 seconds, guys, and we'll be right back after this with uh, Tim Barton of Wall Builders as we celebrate Thanksgiving with you on this amazing day and uh, talk about America's rich heritage when it comes to public Thanksgiving to God Almighty. So we'll be back after 90 seconds. At Truth and Liberty Coalition, we have big plans to make a big impact. If you want to be a part of turning our nation back to God, I want to invite you to become a supporter of Truth and Liberty. You can go on our website at truthandliberty.net to the donate page and make a gift there. And you can also sign up to be uh, make a recurring automatic gift of $5 or more per month, and then you'll become a Truth and Liberty member. And uh, our gifts to Truth and Liberty are not tax deductible, but I promise you, God sees your generosity. So go to Truth and Liberty and become a member today. You were created with a purpose, written in the heart of God. Long before you were born, He is calling you to find it. We want to help you experience his unconditional love to be equipped and empowered to become a world changer. Hi, my name is Carrie Pickett, and like many of you, I wear lots of hats. But most of all, I'm a child of God. Ever since I was young, my desire has been to share the unconditional love of God. There is nothing more rewarding to me than people changing their lives and then changing the world. That's why I'm inviting you to join me wherever you are and let's discover together these foundational truths that will transform your life. All right, well, we're back here on Truth and Liberty on this amazing Thanksgiving holiday today. And I'm with Tim Barton from Wall Builders. Uh, we're just barely scratching the surface here, Tim, aren't yep. we, of the rich heritage that America has of giving thanks to God publicly and this amazing holiday that we have. I mean, very much so. We, we could spend hours just telling part of the story of the pilgrims. What, what led to their first Thanksgiving, which maybe we should take a few minutes yeah. in this section and get to that at some point. But when you start going through how many times God intervened in this nation, how many times God moved on behalf of sometimes the prayers of his people or just God and, and his sovereignty and grace and mercy intervened in moments when it looked hopeless for people, 
we were a nation that had leaders that recognized so many moments when there was things that, that we couldn't explain. Maybe the weather changed in the middle of a battle and, and, and the Americans were able to survive or escape. We had presidents recognizing that was God and we need to thank God for what he did. So our nation has long, long been filled with political leaders that were calling on the state and the nation to pray. And, 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 and you know, Richard, not that we should have to have a political leader remind Christians especially mm -hmm. that we should thank God, but especially when you had political leaders, governors and presidents saying, hey, on this day, let's just all be together on this issue, on this moment. There's something to be said for that, which is why having a designated day for Thanksgiving becomes even more significant that we can rally in a central time to acknowledge God and the good that God has done for us and this nation. Right, absolutely. And I just want to tell our viewers today, um, your dad and you have done an amazing job assembling the historical record on this. Uh, and, and I want to encourage everybody to go to your website, wallbuilders.com. You have a whole page devoted to this issue of Thanksgiving. So just go to wallbuilders.com slash Thanksgiving, and you're going to see tons of information uh, on this. That's what I did. Uh, I was, I, it's so cool. It's like incredible. And um, it'll equip you, you know, to defend America as well, as there are so many naysayers today and people reveal revising history, wanting to, uh, you know, change the actual story of what happened. Mm -hmm. But uh, before we go, I, we definitely want to talk about the pilgrims. But before we do that, can we just talk about Washington's Thanksgiving yes. proclamation for just a second? Because the, uh, I was reading it as well, and I'd heard some bits of it, but I had never read the whole thing before today. And I was just really struck by it. it there's so much in there, Tim, and you, you've you got it on your I do. Uh, I have a computer. Picture, we so can we... pull it up on the screen now. That would probably be helpful for our viewers. And we can just uh, uh, show the folks some stuff here. So if that's ready, uh, let's take a look at Washington's Thanksgiving proclamation. All right, well, there it is. Uh, and he begins, uh, our, our first president, the father of our country begins, and this is right after, as you were saying, uh, the American Revolution, successful uh, against all odds, right. conflict against Great Britain. Uh, the, they adopted a constitution which at, at one point in the Constitutional Convention, they were about to give up hope uh, yep. on the ability to ever come into an agreement. And only after prayer, they reinstituted prayer in the convention. God brought them together, revealed, uh, you know, the compromise that resulted in the amazing, most longest lasting constitution now we know yes. in American history. And then the Bill of Rights. Uh, a collection of some of the greatest articulations of freedom, yep. you know, and that still are the, the gold standard today for preserving freedom. And let's go back up to that document. Here's what Washington said after all of that. He, he began by saying, whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits and humbly implore his protection and favor. Let's just start there. Yeah. What a statement, right? Really, to, to say that he, he's not just calling on Christians. He didn't say it's a duty of all Christians. Mm. He said it's a duty of nations. Right. But it's one of the unique things also about America is America was, we, we were always a nation where there was diversity in our nation. Uh, we can go back to the 1600s and we can show that there were Jewish synagogues in the 1600s, uh, that there was actually a Muslim mosque in America in the 1600s. We can track, or maybe it was 1730, either way. Early America, there, there were always other sentiments here, but what was consistent with the founding fathers in early America 
is they said, you know, this, you don't necessarily have to join with us, but we recognize the duty as a nation. Therefore, as a nation, we recognize God. Mm. So this was Washington's position. He said, because we know nations are supposed to do this, as Americans, we're going to do this. And then he goes through and breaks down what, what those four duties are. He says, it's uh, the duty to acknowledge the providence of God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. And so it's not just that Christians have responsibility, nations have responsibility in Washington says, and at least these four areas. And of course the proclamation goes on, but for him to acknowledge that we have a national duty, duty. that's pretty significant that's pretty coming awesome. from arguably the, the father of America, right? The indispensable man, George Washington, the guy who is probably more responsible than anybody else for America becoming a nation, for having a constitution, yep. for, uh, giving the example, establishing what a president would be, showing how a peaceful transfer of power works. This guy embodies so much of what it meant to be America. And he said, you know what, we have, we have responsibility to make sure we acknowledge God, we, we obey his will, we're grateful for all of the benefits he's given us. And then we humbly implore his protection and favor. Yeah. And this is just how he starts. Yeah. We haven't even gotten into the rest of the proclamation right. yet. Right. This is a starting place. Yeah, you know, I can, if, if uh, the president today were to do something like that, I can hear the, the leftist press now, right? He's trying to create a theocracy. Doesn't he know about separation of church and state? But I'm sure that this proclamation was, there was probably not a single objection in the entire country to it. I mean, except for maybe extreme radical, right. uh, whatever, I, I don't know. There, there, was, there was no political objection to it. All right. Could there have been a citizen? Oh, absolutely. Well, of course. Right, right oh, of course. But there is no record, none. There were 90 members of the first Congress. There's no record anybody opposed it, mm -hmm. right? If you look in, in Washington's cabinet, no record anybody opposed it. This was something that the founding fathers universally agreed and accepted. And by the way, it's not really surprising. And actually I can say later on, Jefferson actually had a disagreement when Jefferson became president, Jefferson was petitioned by Congress to do prayer proclamations. And Jefferson said, ah, I can't do it as president. Now Jefferson had been governor of Virginia and Jefferson as governor of Virginia had done prayer proclamations, but he said, I, I can't do it. And we might look and go, okay, we'll see. That's, that's where people could again argue Jefferson. He just, you know, separates church state, whatever you want to argue. No, no, no. Jefferson explained. He said, because the president is only supposed to do what the federal Congress or what the federal constitution tells him he can do. And the constitution doesn't tell me that I can do this. So even though Washington and Adams did it, he said, the constitution doesn't tell me I can. So I I'm only gonna do what the constitution tells me I can do. I can respect that on some okay. level, right? Like, okay, okay. So the federal, the federal government is only supposed to do what the U.S. Constitution specifically tells them they can do. But Washington did it, Adams did it, Jefferson did it as governor of Virginia, James Madison did it. The, the most noted founding fathers, they had a precedent as governor and or as presidents of acknowledging this, this is the role of the leadership of the nation is to set the example for the nation. In fact, even though Jefferson didn't do prayer proclamations, Jefferson actually attended church at the U.S. Capitol building. Wow. And he attended as vice president, and then he attended all eight years as president. And he actually, and, and the reason I want to point this out is because I don't want people to think that Jefferson was really anti-religious, because he really wasn't. But Jefferson attended church at the Capitol, and his explanation was, he says, no nation has ever been governed without a religion, nor can be because there has to be some moral code you follow. He said, and there's no greater religion than Christianity. And I, as chief magistrate of this nation, am bound to give it the sanction of my example. 
Wow. So he says, we're going to have to follow some set of morals. There's no better morals in Christianity. He says, so I need, to, I need to set the example for the nation of what kind of nation we're going to be. He said, so I'm going to go to church every Sunday because I want people to know this is the kind of nation we are. Yeah. So even though he didn't do a prayer and Thanksgiving proclamation, every other noted founding father, now again, he did it as governor, not as president, but every, every noted founding father, if they were in a position of governor or president, they did prayer and Thanksgiving proclamations. So this notion of separation of church and state, I feel like if it was unconstitutional, they would have known about it. <laughs> Since they wrote it. Since they're the ones that literally wrote it, right? Yeah. George Washington was the president of the convention. And this is where I think you could even argue that Washington knew more about this than Jefferson did, because Jefferson wasn't at the Constitution Convention. Mm -hmm. He was in France. France. He had nothing to do with the Constitution. So the guy who was actually the president of the convention, who oversaw the entire drafting right in the Constitution, our first president, George Washington, he probably had the best understanding of what the Constitution was and what it wasn't. Yeah. And the fact that he did this, he clearly did not think it was a violation. Instead, he recognized this is the example we need to set because this is the kind of nation we want to be. Yeah. And, you know, in our and, and we've got to we've got to talk about the pilgrims. But today uh, it's like we're so concerned about the lone objector and the one mm -hmm. person who may not believe in God and the, the concerns of the atheists that we we trump the entire uh, common faith of the nation. Right. And it's interesting in Washington's proclamation to me in the second paragraph, he, he's, he's calling the people to prayer and he says that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks. Right. So uh, there, there was an idea that the president, even though he's a civil leader yeah, and, and uh, we don't have an established church, that it is perfectly incumbent on him as the leader of the nation to call the people together yes. to give thanks to God because we recognize who we are as a people and that God is the one who gave us our country. Yes, because what, what we can also identify from the Declaration, the Declaration opening line is the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. They were unanimous in mm -hmm. the sentiments in the final draft of the Declaration. Well, in that, the second paragraph, when it says, we all these truths be self-evident, all men are created equal. Yeah. They're endowed by their creator mm -hmm. with certain rights. One of the things that was universally agreed upon is there was a God. Yeah. Like that, that, that was not debated. Everybody knew there was a God, and it wasn't even debated who God was. Yeah. Right now, there was a couple that might have questioned the divinity of Jesus. They believed that Jesus was a real person, that he was a great moral teacher, but there was a couple. Now, I'm saying a couple out of hundreds, mm -hmm. right? So I don't want people to misunderstand. There was a couple sure. who I would not call a Christian, but I also would acknowledge they were not atheists, agnostics, or deists. Uh -huh. They were much closer to like a Jew who believes in God, but not sure about Jesus. That, mm -hmm. that was where a couple of them were. It was universal. They believed in God. And because they believed in God, where Washington says we need to unite around this, when the founding father said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, they disagreed about so much. They debated a lot. But they said, here's truth we can unite around. That's right. what the declaration was. Right. That's what Washington is calling them back to, yeah. saying we can unite around, around what? Around the fact that we all know there's a God. Yeah. And it's not just any God. It's not the God of Islam or the God of Hinduism no. or the God of Buddha. This is the God of the Bible. Because if you look at the statements in the declaration about God and you look at it through a theological lens, you're going to see that those principles don't exist in any other religion no. except Bible Christianity and, and uh, or maybe Judaism. But correct. It's certainly not um, Eastern. religion. No, it's a Judeo-Christian ethic. Right? Yeah, right. But it's because the Jews really rely on the Torah, not even like the whole Old Testament. Usually it's the Torah. Well, that's the foundation. Uh, that's a starting place for us as Christians. Right. So it's very consistent in so many of those regards and respects. And to your point of 
the, the notion that it wasn't some other religion. In their writings, they are very clear that the religion they were centered around was the religion of Jesus Christ and the religion of the Bible. That is in their writings. Yeah. So this, this is not really debatable if you study their writings, but most people haven't studied their writings. Thank you. And yeah. so they hear you know, some yeah. academics say, well, we know they were really secular. How? Because let's remind everybody, by 1815, there's more than 1,400 official government prayer proclamations for prayer and fasting and prayer and thanksgiving. So if the argument is they were atheists, agnostics, and deists, then why did they pray all the time? Because mm -hmm. atheists, agnostics, and deists would not pray all the time, and, and, and they certainly wouldn't call on their state or on the nation to pray. Maybe we just misunderstood who they were, yeah. and maybe we should go back and learn more of their stories. Yeah, a deist by definition does not believe that God intervenes in the affairs of men. He thinks the opposite right. is true, right? right? He's the great clockmaker, puts it on the shelf and watches it, you know, do what it's right. going to do. And yet here's Washington in the very opening line saying to a, that we need to acknowledge the what? Providence of God, meaning His care and right. intervention in our affairs. Providence was described as God's involvement in the affairs of men. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about the pilgrims. We've got about 14 minutes left. I, I should have started sooner on this. What is the real story here of the pilgrims and this, this tradition that we always see the images of yes. Thanksgiving and so on? Because it's come under attack. Hasn't it, it? it has. It's so silly that we are in an era now where people, uh, th there's a movement, just like there's been a movement to, to cancel Christopher Columbus and, and it's Indigenous Peoples Day. There's now a movement to cancel Thanksgiving and they want to call it a day of mourning. Why are we mourning? What they argue is that because white people stole all the land from natives, we should be mourning what the white people did, not celebrating the pilgrims because the pilgrims were land stealers. That argument is really, really ridiculous if you know the story of the pilgrims. And by the way, the story of many of the early colonist settlers uh, and, and leaders of the early colonies. Let me walk through that real quick. The pilgrims were a church congregation. When King James comes into power, King James is the one who does the King James Bible. Mm -hmm. King James is also the one who banned the Geneva Bible. So there can be no Bibles in England except the King James Bible. Uh, King James also uh, issued a decree where he said that you cannot print any uh, religious commentary because he said, we, we really want to control what people think about the Bible. We're going to control the Bible market. The pilgrims end up leaving England, going to Holland because they recognize this isn't really going to work for us. They go to Holland and they have more freedom in Holland, but they're not quite outside the reach of the king because they actually begin writing some commentaries and sending it, smuggling it back to their friends in England. The king finds out, he's like, what are you doing? This isn't acceptable. Also, their kids, even though they had freedom in Holland, they notice their kids begin to be influenced by the people living in Holland and, and, and by that culture. And it wasn't really a Christian culture. And the pilgrims thought, okay, we, we want to go somewhere where we're not quite in reach of the king, where our, our kids aren't being influenced to embrace these secular, ungodly notions. So this led them to ultimately determine we want to go to the new world because that's where they thought they could find more freedom and not have the oversight of a king or some kind of royal religious personnel. They request for the king. Uh, he gives them an official grant for a charter. That they can. He's going to allow them to go to the Jamestown colony and settle because that's where people have already settled. So the pilgrims in the summer are back in England of 1620. They uh, are looking for some ships. They hire two ships, the Mayflower and the Speedwell. The Speedwell, as they begin to leave, the Speedwell developed a leak. And they go, oh man, we got to go back. They go back, they patch the leak. They think, okay, we're good. They go back a second time. It developed a leak a second time. Mm. And they go, what's going on? Now, it could be a little humor to add that the holes that were being developed 
were the size of a drill auger that somebody was putting holes in it. Uh, and so they, they, what the pilgrims came to realize is this is sabotage. Like some, some, some crew, somebody that's in the crew on the ship does not want to go to the new world. They, they had a Democrat on board. Guess, right? no. <laughs> pull the fire alarm. Yeah, yeah, Some, something like that, right? Uh, we're going to stop this thing. Okay. So they, they end up going back. It, it, it's a little tongue in cheek, right? But ultimately they, they determined they thought it was sabotage. And, and, and I think historians have kind of agreed that's probably the case because as soon as the pilgrims got off, then the Speedwell was hired by uh, another group and they took uh, voyages to different locations and they never had issues. So that's when they're like, yeah, this was sabotage. Somebody didn't want to go to the new world or at least not take the pilgrims to the new world. So the pilgrims realize we can't take the speed well, but they're trying to make it that year. So they say, let's get everybody we can on the Mayflower. So they unload the Mayflower of some of the normal uh, things that would be all like in, in the captain's quarters. They move out like the desks and chairs and, and just to have more space to fit more people on. And they're not able to get their entire church congregation on because that's really, they, they were a church congregation. That's who they were. They're moving together. It's a religious group of believers together. But they get enough people on. They say, okay, we're going to go. Uh, the rest of the pilgrims thought, you guys get established. We'll come join you later. But they don't leave England until around September. Mm. Now, that's a problem because if it's a couple month voyage across the ocean, which it was, you're arriving over in November. And at this point, winter's, winter's already setting in. As they begin sailing across the new world, there's major storms. The storms are so bad, it starts blowing them north. And, and they can't adjust their sails enough that they can't get back south. So they're blown north of the Virginia colony, and they're not even sure where to go. And, and somebody has a map. There, somebody had done some exploring earlier, and they say, okay, well, it looks like there's a place up north uh, called Plymouth. Let's see if we can find it. Well, maybe we can land there, safe harbor. So they find this place. When they land, it's November. Winter is already set in. Their, their food supplies have almost completely gone away, right? It's diminished significantly. Some of the food that's left is rotten. So they're out of food. They arrive in winter to a place where there are no shelter. There are no huts. There are no log cabins. They don't have fuel cut for fire to keep them warm. And that winter, about half of the pilgrims died. Wow. So just, just devastating. But they're able to, that spring, they get off and they're going to start trying to navigate. Well, there was a, a, one of the first encounters they had with a Native American was with Somerset. Somerset spoke a little bit of English because he had done some trading before with Englishmen. He knew some words. And, and, and they had heard from the people of Jamestown that the natives are really hostile. They're really mean. And so the pilgrims were kind of nervous. They actually had brought along Miles Sanders as their military commander. He was going to be their, their protector for them. Because they were like, we're church people. We, you know, we're not sure about this war stuff. So they hired a professional to come help train them in their defenses and keep them safe and watch out for them. Well, when they meet Somerset, they're really kind of taken back. He spoke English and they're like, this is crazy. We, we didn't know somebody spoke English. And he tells them that there's somebody who speaks even more English than he does. And he's going to get him and come back. Somerset comes back with a delegation of natives. And in that delegation was a native named Squanto. Squanto becomes one of the most significant figures in the Pilgrim history. Uh, I, I think you could argue Governor Bradford and Squanto are the two most significant in the Pilgrim story. And what is fascinating about this story, Squanto is fluent in English. And the reason is back up to 1613, 1614, 1615, uh, one of the early governors of Jamestown was John Smith. And John Smith had, uh, <laughs> 
been essentially blown up, so to speak. There was a gunpowder accident. It was believed to be sabotaged because John Smith had passed a law that said all the people of Jamestown, regardless of status, regardless of social condition, everybody has to work. We're all going to the field. We're all working. And there were people that got frustrated with that, and they said, nope, we, we don't want you to tell us what to do. So there was a gunpowder explosion. You had to go back to England to recover. So there was a new governor. Well, he came back and decided, I want to explore going north. So he starts going north, exploring, uh, seeing what else is there. And there were multiple ships with him. One of the ships with him was captained by Thomas Hunt. Uh, John Smith had a great relation with natives. Uh, he and Pocahontas had become very good friends. But some of the other individuals with him weren't really great people, Thomas Hunt being one of those. So John Smith had done trading with some of the natives. Uh, there was three ships. He leaves. Second ship leaves. Third ship is Thomas Hunt. And Thomas Hunt stays and invites some of the natives. They're in canoes. They're watching him. He says, hey, you guys want to come see this big boat, see what it's like? So 27 natives came out. They got on board his boat. He said, hey, you guys come down below deck. We want to show you something. He walked them down and he locked them in a prison cell below deck. He then sails back over to Europe. Wow. Well, Thomas Hunt has now kidnapped 27 natives. They get to Europe. When they get to Europe, they sell these natives as slaves, because this is also the era of right, slave trade, very common in this era everywhere in the world. As he begins to sell them, there was a group of religious leaders like monks, friars, and, and they see these natives who have been kidnapped being sold. And so they're able to raise money. They go and they buy all of them they can. And it's estimated they buy about 19 of them. One of them was Squanto. Well, they're able to help get Squanto and the other natives, and, and they end up making their way back to England. When they get to England, they are taken in by a group of religious leaders, again, kind of like monks uh, in this scenario. They're taken in, and they begin to learn English, and they learn the Bible. And Squanto lived with them for approximately four to five years. 1619, Squanto says, I really want to go back. I, I, I miss my family, my tribe. It, it, it's believed that possibly he was even married, and so he had a wife that was back in the New World. He wants to go back. So 1619, he's able to get on a ship. They go back, Virginia Colony. He goes north, and he goes back to where his home tribe had been, and they're all gone. They, they had been wiped out by a disease. He is the only survivor left. Well, he joins up with a, a local tribe. They were the, uh, the Wampanoag tribe. And so he joins with them. Well, the following year is when the pilgrims arrive. The pilgrims land in the area that his tribe used to live in. Wow. And so when he comes to them, he speaks English and he sees now he's just been in England for five years. Yeah. So he knows English. He knows their culture, their customs. He's very familiar with it. And, and he sees and he's like, these guys need a lot of help. And they did. And Squanto that spring determined he wanted to live with them and help show them how to survive. There is literally nobody that could have helped them more in that moment because this is a guy who used to live in the place where they're now trying to live, but also a guy who had lived five years in the place they've just come from. Wow. And, and when he's able to tell them, hey, guys, uh, so when, when it's time to go fishing, really, you want to fish over here. He's not just theoretically teaching them how to fish. He actually knows the places yeah. where the yeah. fish are because yeah. that's where he used to fish. He knows where to hunt because that's where he used to hunt. He, he knows the, the best places to grow crops. That's where he grew crops. He lives with them for two years. For two years, he teaches them how to live off the land. Uh, he, he gets sick and ends up dying. When he dies, uh, he, he called in some of the, the pilgrims and he said, pray for me that when I die, I may go to your God in heaven because he was so impressed with what he'd learned from the pilgrims. Now, you know, who knows what happened in that scenario, but th this was... This was the indication of the pilgrims that th they were incredible friends 
to the natives. They didn't steal from the natives. And backing up, when Somerset came with that initial delegation in, in the spring of 1621 uh, at this point, the chief of the Wampanoag tribe, Chief Massasoit, was with them. And when Chief Massasoit came, they were able to work on a peace treaty that was the longest lasting peace treaty between any Anglos, any, any European settlers, and any natives in American history. It lasted 54 years. And to go further, Squanto begins living with them that year, helping them survive. They continue to interact with the natives. Well, that fall, they want to have a time of Thanksgiving because they want to thank God look at what we've accomplished, yeah. right? We came, we had nothing. We, we now, we have friends that are helping us survive and God's helping us grow crops and, and, and we're hunting and we're fishing and we're building place and we need to thank God. Their Thanksgiving turned into a three-day festival and feast. And there were moments when they had times of prayer. There were moments when they were feasting. There were moments they were doing athletic competitions where they were having races and wrestling matches, shooting matches with the natives. But what's also worth noting about this is that Chief Massasoit came with 90 male brave warriors. The pilgrims, uh, I think the Plymouth Historic Society identified there were 53 pilgrims there at that dinner. So, which also worth noting, I think the Pilgrim Historic Society says that, that, that like it was either 18 to 22, somewhere in that number of them, of the pilgrims were adult age males between 13 and 60. Okay. The reason this matters yes. is had the pilgrims mistreated or stolen the land from the natives, that first Thanksgiving might have gone a bit different. Right. Right. Massasoit and his men could have wiped them out in a heartbeat, but he didn't. Instead, during those three days of feasting, Chief Massasoit and his braves brought the majority of the food. They brought the deer and the eel and the crabs. You go down the list of all the food, the natives brought the majority of it, which again is an indication that the pilgrims were not these people who were there to do evil and violate. In fact, if, if we go through the early colonies, William Penn was a founder of Pennsylvania. He was a Quaker. He bought the land from the local native tribes, even though the king had given it to him. Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island, bought the land from the local native tribe. Consistently, when you look at the early colonies, especially the northern colonies, they bought all of the land from the natives at a price agreed upon between them and the natives. When people say that, that we stole all the land, that's just not historically accurate. Now, historically, at some point, land was stolen, but now you're getting more into the Andrew Jackson era of the 1820s and 30s, not from the 1600s and the 1700s. You're talking way, way later that you begin to see the more prevalent issues of the federal government dishonoring and, and breaking the native treaties. But that's not the way it was from the first Thanksgiving. So when there's people trying to cancel the first Thanksgiving, all it tells me is they really don't know the story of the first Thanksgiving. Well, uh, it's gotten to a point now where they don't even acknowledge the legitimacy of the United States, right? They think that, that the, even the first settlers, even the pilgrims should never have set foot over here because this land belonged to the Indians. Is that an accurate understanding of history? So when you look at how large America was, the idea that natives who, there were only a couple million natives, inhabited every part of this land is, is a really kind of ridiculous position to take. And even given the fact that at that time, natives were conquest people. And so they were conquering other tribes and taking other tribes' possessions. So if we're even arguing, we should give the, the land back to the natives, which native tribe you give it to, yep. right? Because it, it went through so many hands, but that's not really the point of Thanksgiving anyway. It's not, the, it's not the story of conquest. It's a story of friendship. It's a story of the sharing of the gospel and thanking God for what God had done in their journey coming to the new world. Right. 
Well, and and uh, folks, we could go on for another hour. We could. At least talking about this. I again want to encourage you guys to go to uh, Tim and David's website, wallbuilders.com uh, slash Thanksgiving, and you can find tons of research that you can do on your own there, and also encourage you to support their amazing work uh, financially and with your prayers. And uh, that's all we have for you today. Uh, I wish we could go on, but we are out of time. And Tim, I just want to thank you again, brother, for coming. My this pleasure. Is awesome. And uh, you ought to write a book on this. No, wait, no, you probably already have. Uh, thank you guys for watching. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you and to your families. God bless you guys and God bless America. We'll see you again uh, tomorrow on Truth and Liberty. Thank you for joining today's Truth and Liberty livecast. You can watch today's and past livecasts in our archives at truthandliberty.net. Our goal is to educate Christians and connect them with resources and organizations to help them impact their sphere of influence. You can help us accomplish this by making a donation at truthandliberty.net slash donate. Join us next time for more Truth and Liberty.